You are listening to the Life Point Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Drew Meyer. For more information about other Life Point Church resources, please visit www.livethemessage.org. It's a unique little town of 2,500 people that swells to 100,000 people in the summer because it's all uh, built and sustained through tourism. So every tourist trap you can think of, more mini golf than you could ever golf, and um, water, water parks and theme parks and go-karts. My family experienced Wisconsin Dells last summer. So we were driving on our, on our way back from Wisconsin Dells, a week of vacation, a day of traveling with four kids, and you can hopefully... Um, empathize with me. As you're on the final stretch of a road trip like that or a week away, um, it's like you can smell, the, the, you can already sense the smell of your home and the feeling of your bed as you're getting closer to home. So I had driven all day long on the interstate, had hopped on a two-lane highway just a couple miles out of town, and I was zipping along like you do because I could, I could just taste my home. I could, I could sense I was so close. And then I saw in my rearview mirror the sirens, I mean the, the lights. I did not see the sirens. I, I saw the lights, the flashing lights in my rear view mirror. And I know you're, you're, you're maybe more righteous than I, but my, my heart sank and, and, and I knew I was caught. So I pulled over and, and the cop, he gave me a little mercy, but he didn't end up handing me a ticket. I was guilty as charged. I stood condemned before the law. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about the law of God and how Jesus set us free from the condemnation of the law. Last week, I had these chains up on the stage and how every time that we, we fool ourselves into earning the grace of God, we're simply falling back into the slavery that Christ Jesus freed us from. So we've been freed from the condemnation of the law. I stood condemned before this police officer. In light of, laws, in, in light of the, the law of God, you and I, we stand condemned. Jesus Christ set us free from that condemnation. But the logical question then is, what, what role does the law of God play in our life then? Some believers have made the, the horrible mistake of throwing out the 39 books of the Bible leading up to the life of Jesus because they say we are in the covenant of grace. We're in a new covenant now. So that, that, that entire uh, portion of God's redemptive plan is irrelevant to our lives. I'm going to tell you that's, that's not what we're going to do as a church the 39 books leading up to the life of Jesus is fully relevant to our lives. We just need to put it in proper context. We need to understand how the law of God fits into our lives today. It has a role to play in your life. The grace of God is unending and relentless. It's, it's reckless. He's pursuing you as we just sang in that song. And the law of God points us towards the extravagant love of Jesus. So let's look at Galatians chapter 3. We've been working our way through this book. Paul wrote to a group of churches in a region called Galatia. And the purpose of the book is very clear. There have been some influencers who worked their way into the church saying that, yes, we affirm faith in Jesus, but we want followers of Jesus to also adhere to certain other traditions in order for it to really be legit. If we're saying their faith is legit in Jesus Christ, then they have to be circumcised or they have to follow other Jewish traditions. And Paul is not going to let that fly, not on, not on his watch. He said, I don't want to run in vain. All that fruit that he had seen as he preached the gospel to the Gentiles, I don't want to run in vain. And so he is, he's ardently, passionately defending the real gospel, 
The real good news, as we've been talking about last week and the week before, the good news of Jesus. So let's read this, starting in verse 1. Let me just pray before we read. Lord, this morning as we just consider your goodness displayed in the person of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, I pray that it'd be tangible, that it'd be real in this place, that it'd penetrate hearts, that it'd be fully relevant to people's lives. You see every situation, you see every circumstance represented here this morning. And your word, your good news is fully relevant. So God, in your power, in your might, in your own intimate way, I pray you'd speak like only you can in your precious name. Amen. Let's read this starting in verse 1. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? We'll stop right there for a second. So Paul brings them back, brings these Galatian believers back to their first encounter with Jesus. He's like, just consider that first moment when the... the, um, crucified Jesus was portrayed to you. It was spoken to you. It was proclaimed to you. It was, it was almost as though it was visible to you. That's, that's like the, the, the eyes of your heart could see its relevance to your life. You, be, you looked on the crucified Jesus. You had faith to believe that it was relevant to your lives, and you were saved. And then the single greatest transaction that can happen in a human life happened. The Spirit of God came and took up residence in these Galatian believers. If you're in this place and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. It's the single greatest human transaction that can take place in a human life. That's why almost every single week we give an opportunity for people to respond, place their faith in Jesus Christ. It is the single greatest transaction that can happen in your life. When Jesus takes care of your sin issue and Holy Spirit can now take up residence in your life. He says that whole thing, that whole encounter, that whole moment that they all affirm in their own lives took place because of faith. It wasn't because of arm twisting. It wasn't because all of a sudden your righteousness caught, caught the, uh, the eye of God and he's like, okay, now they've earned it. No, it's not. It's because of the sufficiency of Jesus. The Spirit of God can take up residence in you. So obviously the answer to the question is was, or it was by, by the Spirit, by faith. So let's keep reading. He says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So this is where we get to the relevance of our life of what we're talking about this morning. So after you encounter Jesus, you place your faith in Jesus Christ we would all, most of you in this place would affirm that, especially after what we've talked about the last few weeks. But how do we progress from that place of initial encounter? After you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you say, I'm a Christ follower, I'm saved, I'm redeemed. Do we then go on to be perfected? And it's not so much that we experience perfection this side of eternity, but we're being perfected in the likeness of Christ as we make our, our journey towards heaven Is that done by works, or is it done by faith? He says that because he's brought them back to where they started. If that's the way you started, by faith, then continue on in that same way. It's still by faith. We're still being being perfected into the likeness of Christ by faith. 
Don't fool yourselves into thinking it was started by faith. Now you got to somehow grow and, and be perfected by works. Can I tell you, God's will for your life is for you to grow and to be perfected in the likeness of Christ. And don't settle for anything less. Don't settle for a simple affirmation of Jesus Christ as Savior and then stop there. God's will for your life is for you to grow, for you to go from glory to glory, for you to be perfected into the likeness of Christ, for you to bear the image of God more accurately day after day after day. It's not easy to wake up and place your faith in Jesus Christ day after day, but it's God's best for your life. And he uses the example of miracles, which I just love, and I want us to take a moment to appreciate it. Because, oh, how far we have fallen. This book was written, this letter was written 15 years after the, really the early church was initiated, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. We see that. And still here, 15 years into the, the life of this, the early church, miracles were still the norm. That he would use it as an example to urge them, how, how, are, how are miracles, how do miracles take place in our midst? It's obviously by faith. It's a simple, just divine work of God. It's not anything that we do. That is the essence of a miracle. It's God superseding the natural laws, doing the miraculous in a moment. It's the norm of the early church. It's the norm of the ministry of Jesus. It's the norm of the early church, and so it should be with us. And so I want us to be a church that contends for our standard to be the standard of Scripture, which is the miraculous. It does not mean we worship miracles. We do not worship signs and wonders, but we do worship the God of miracles. We exalt him to the, his rightful place that he can do as he wills on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what we're going to go after. I, I just passionately set aside the notion that I'm going to allow my experiences to dictate how I view the future of my life. I, I want to I make my view of the future based on Scripture. And as I, as I look at the testimony of Jesus, as I look at the testimony of the early church, miracles, God going before the people in power, demonstrating his love and his mercy and his grace to a lost and dying world time and time again, it was the steady diet of the early church. And I want it to be the same for us. And and. Just because we are a church that contends to worship God as a God of miracles does not mean that we set aside our intellect. I'm a nerd with the best of them. I, I love to think and I love to read and I, I, I love to be intellectual. But we have to be careful in our intellectual pursuits because in, in many times the temptation in our, in our intellectual pursuits is to exalt ourselves. And all of a sudden we begin to think that we've figured things out. And we begin to raise our view, I mean, lower our, our view of God and raise our view of ourselves. That's a scary place to be. We can utilize our minds while still continuing to exalt God to his rightful place as the God of miracles. The God that goes before us and demonstrates power. That's so relevant to our lives. Because just consider the testimony of Jesus. I'm sorry, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here. Just consider the testi testimony of Jesus. This is the God of the universe. He's been, you know, the universe is still expanding. He's been there. And yet, in the testimony of Jesus, 
he saw this woman who had struggled with this issue of blood for years. So he's the God of the intimate details, and he heals her. He cares about it. Not only does he care about the cosmos and these galaxies, these millions of galaxies, but he cares about this woman with this issue of blood in the Gospels. He cares about this, this boy who all he had known was blindness. He cares about it and he heals him. He cares about the, the pain of this father who's watching his boy with epileptic seizures continually and God heals him. It's the God of the miracles. We, we just got to continue to keep our eyes fixed on this God of power that sets us free inwardly but also does things outwardly in our midst. And it's that same faith in, in this God of the miraculous. It's that same faith that continues us or leads us on in this walk with Jesus Christ, growing to the perfection of more accurately bearing the image of Christ. Let's keep reading in verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, question mark, sorry, that was the end of a sentence. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Paul's a really smart dude, and he is trying to convince Jewish believers of the proper context of the law of God. So he's smart, and he uses the example of Abraham. Because Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel. If anybody can convince these stubborn influencers of the proper context of faith and the law should be Abraham. So he brings them all the way back to Abraham. The very initiation of this entire nation, this entire plan, this entire idea, it starts with Abraham. How was Abraham's story initiated? It was it because Abraham was so perfect? He was so righteous, right? Oh no, you gotta read Abraham's story. He's a messed up dude. And I think that's what's one thing that's very profound about God's redemptive plan is he doesn't shy away, and the authors did not shy away from our imperfections. It's a scandalous story of God using broken people, wicked people, and his glory shines that much more brightly when we realize that. So Abraham, I mean, he, he, what he... Uh, what Paul quotes here is Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where he says it was credited to him as righteousness, accounted to him as righteousness. Because he placed his faith in the promise of the Father, the promise of God, that it was sufficient, that his power was sufficient. Just prior to that, he had feared for his own life, so he lied about being married to his wife. I mean, it doesn't get much worse than that. And he gives up his wife to who knows what, putting her in harm's way. He was a coward like the, like the best of us. I mean, so selfishly, you know, inwardly uh, consumed. And yet, when the promise of God was presented to him, he had faith to believe that it was sufficient. This was an old man, well into his 90s, and yet he had no child, no son, no heir. And God, the promise God gave him was that he would be the father of many nations. And through him, he'd bless all the nations. And so in that, in his inadequacy and his imperfections, he places his faith in the promise of God. And God says it was accounted to him as righteousness. All of a sudden, his ledger, his account was marked with red 
bleeding red. It wasn't just wiped clean, but it was credited to him as righteousness. It was now in the black. Now he was considered righteous. Here's an example, an illustration, a modern-day illustration. Several weeks ago, my son had the idea of trying to build an ice rink in our backyard. And this was when it was 30 below. Long story short, he ends up flooding our basement because the pipes were frozen and, and whatnot. So half our basement is sopping wet. And so in that moment, we were bleeding red because of the cost of cleaning all that up. Carpet and padding and baseboard and all that. Furniture, all half of our basement. It's a finished basement. We were bleeding red. Thank the Lord for insurance. And so we are in this moment of, of believing in faith that the insurance company is going to say what, what the, uh, they're going to do what they say they're going to do and they're going to provide to allow for our account to be credited as in the black because we can't pay for it on our own. That, that analogy breaks down in the sense that I've been paying a premium for insurance, so that's why we get insurance. With, with, with Christ and God's grace, you're not paying for it ever. He's always the one that's providing it. Zero premium. But our account will be credited. We will be in the black. Praise the Lord. Let's keep reading in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. I want to ask you a question from that portion right there. What is it that you're living by? He presents here two options. Either you're living by the law or you're living by faith. But what is it that you're living by? What is it that gives you confidence? What is it that every day gives you meaning and gives you purpose? What is it that gives you identity? Here he gives two options. And I believe these are the the two options that all of humanity chooses between. Either we're constantly in this uh, dead end, honestly, or never-ending um, cycle of trying to build up the case of our righteousness. That, oh, what we're doing means something in and of itself. Or we finally come to the end of ourselves and we, we realize the love of God. And we begin to live by faith, understanding that he is sufficient. He uses some pretty strong language here to, to describe that path of kind of defining our own right and wrong, and, and it's always arbitrary because we never measure up. We never measure up if we, if we choose the path of the law. It's never enough. We talked about that last week, or we talked about the first week. We all need rescuing. doesn't matter how good of a person you are. We all need rescuing. But he uses the language of being cursed. You are cursed if you do not follow every bit of the law of God. That's, that's, that's a tough standard to uphold. But every, that means every single one of us are cursed. And even if you were to be like Paul and you say, I, before he encountered Christ, I've done it all. I've followed every iota of the law. Jesus came and he raised the standard of the law. 
Because God's heart was never the letter of the law. His, his heart was the spirit of the law, demonstrating his holiness. And so Jesus came and he said, the law says, do not commit adultery. But even if you look upon a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. And we all stand condemned. He said, the law says, do not commit murder. But even if you harshly say raka or call somebody a fool, which is an Aramaic term for calling somebody a fool in a harsh way, he says, you've committed murder in your heart. So we all stand condemned. And so we all are in that path of being cursed. Oh, it's such good news, though, that Jesus came. The standard is impossible to fulfill, and yet Jesus himself, being God, fulfilled it. And he became the curse for us. And he also quotes Deuteronomy and says, curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. So not only did he fulfill the requirements that call us cursed, but then he took upon the payment of that curse by dying on a cross. So here it is. Here's one of my main ideas for the context of the law in the life of the believer. The law shows us our desperate need for a Savior and the extravagant power of Jesus. You and I desperately need a Savior, every single one of us, and the law shows us that. The, the law shows us that we'll never, we'll never, we'll never measure up, we'll never line up with God's standard of holiness. He is fully set apart. And so day after day, obviously in that moment, when you initiate a relationship with Christ, you realize that God is holy, I am not, I've messed up. You can be a good person in this world, I'm not, I'm not arguing with that. You can be a great person in this world, but before God, we all stand condemned. And then on top of that, if the standard is so impossible, we can realize the power of God is so extravagant that it fulfills that. It fulfills every tiny detail of the law. Jesus did. He walked amongst us. He, he submitted himself to every temptation like you and I. So he didn't take the easy road, the shortcut. He submitted himself to every temptation like you and I, but yet stand, he, but yet he stood holy, perfect. And so the law of God still plays a role in our lives. But it's not to be a taskmaster in your life. And we're going to read that here in a moment. It's not meant to be the, uh, the weight and the condemnation of the law. You need to frame the law of God in its proper context, and it can play a role in your life. It actually makes the gospel of Jesus come alive in a real way. Let's keep reading. Verse 15, he says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediator, intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. You may all be scratching your head. 
but let me break it down a little bit. Not all those verses, even the greatest New Testament scholars understand fully, specifically that last um, verse and a half about intermediaries. Scholars struggle with those verses. But let's bring it back to his example of Abraham and the covenant made to Abraham, because there's something very profound I want us to understand. As we're putting into proper context the law, what came first? Was it the promise of the law? It was the promise. God gave Abraham the promise of redemption. That humanity messed it up, but I'm going to redeem this thing. This story that I initiated, I'm going to redeem it. I'm going I'm to make something beautiful out of it. And what did he do? Holy God set apart, unlike any other, fully righteous, fully holy in every way. The word holy means set apart. So God... In all that he is, he is holy, set apart. At the same time that he is holy, he is one that stoops down and he makes a covenant with humanity. A covenant is between two people. It communicates relationship. God is a God of relationship. So you can just allow your mind to be exploded for a moment. How God can be set apart and holy In the essence, it seems impossible that it could ever go with relationship, but at the same time, God is a God of relationship. And God is a God of covenant relationship, meaning he makes an agreement with humanity. He's going to keep his end of the bargain. We can trample on it and trash it, but God's going to keep his promise to humanity. And so Paul makes the point that the law came 430 years after the promise. So what, what, which aspect of God's redemptive plan are you going to allow to take the day? Is it going to be the promise or the law? It has to be the, the promise initiated by faith. That's what rules the day. The law played a proper role in, in a certain context, in a certain part of the redemptive plan. But it was the promise initiated by faith that rules the day. And I want you to cling to that tension. Instead of resisting that tension, because our minds have a hard time wrapping ourselves around it, the fact that God is holy and relational, just embrace that tension. God is perfectly holy, and yet he stoops down to your level, and he's an intimate relational God. It's what sets the good news apart from all other uh, religious systems. He's a God that cares about humanity. He cares about you. He loves you. Let's keep reading. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. He's already answered that. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So you always have to put into proper context the law of God. It played a role for a season. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you... As we're baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, 
There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is extremely good news to every single person here this morning. It does not matter what your background is. It does not matter uh, what your income is. It does not matter what your race is. It doesn't matter what town you're from. Christ, you, you, are, you have access to the inheritance that is available in Christ. You can be considered Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise through faith. The law shows us our desperate need for a Savior and the extravagant power of Jesus, and that's what he's able to accomplish. He's able to level the playing field of all of, hum- all of humanity and redeem us. This is what John Stott said, putting into proper context the law of God. He says, No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. It's only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. And it's only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. And so for a season, God put us under the guardianship of the law. That's the analogy he uses here. It's like a child being told exactly what to do. That's what the law does. It's, it's, it's manipulating you. There's no relationship in the law. The law is telling you, if you don't do this, these are the consequences. So do this or else. It's just like a guardian watching over a child. It's these clear boundaries. There's, there's no love in it. There's no relationship. It's this, this inanimate situation of a guardian just imprisoning a child or even a prisoner. But we've been set free from that. And I want you to put into proper context now the motivation in all of this. Because this is, this is the real kicker of now that applies to our daily lives. There has been a complete shift in our motivation. Whereas when we were submitted to the law, we were constantly trying to gain a way of salvation, to make a way for ourselves, to, to prove that somehow we are right, we are in right standing with God, that somehow God could maybe accept us because we're doing things the right way. And it's this, it's, it's, it just brings me anxiety thinking about it. Now there's a complete shift in motivation. Now we've been wrecked by the extravagant love of God. We realize our desperate need for a savior. We realize the, the length that God went for us. We've been wrecked by it. And now there's this new, fresh motivation of love that we want to fulfill the spirit of the law, knowing that we never will, but we desire, in, in the context of relationship, to fulfill the spirit of the law day by day. So now our motivation isn't to obey the letter of the law as a way of being saved. Now we desire to obey the spirit of the law out of relationship with Christ. There's been a complete shift in our motivation. And I just speak that over your life. That day to day, you'd free yourself of the condemnation of the law. But instead, as you even read much of the Old Testament, if you're, reading, if you're following along with our Bible reading plan on the Read Scripture app, we're right now in some pretty meaty parts of the law. We're in the book of Exodus right now. 
as God has begun to reveal the actual law to Moses here soon, it's easy as we start reading that to get off into all sorts of tangents in our own hearts and to almost get distracted by the law. But instead, if you zoom out, which this Bible reading app does a great job of allowing you to do, as you zoom out, you realize, oh, the law played a role for a season. And in its proper context, it can still bring me to that place daily of all oh, my desperate need for the perfect work of Jesus Christ and his full ability to do it in our lives. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. We're going to actually end with communion this morning. I felt like communion was the best way for us to end this morning in light of what we're talking about, the full requirements of the law being fully met in Jesus Christ. He was the only candidate worthy of that spot, and he fully fulfilled it. And I'm just believing and praying over every single person in this place that day by day there'd be this shift that takes place in your own heart. As you're wrecked by the holiness of God, but yet then at the same time the extravagant love of God, there'd be this shift in motivation. That you so desire to please and honor him in the context of relationship. I'll illustrate it in this way. Love is in the air in our church right now. I don't know if you've heard, but there's been six engagements in the last month and a half or so. So if you're a single dude in this place and you're like considering popping the question, there's been a pretty good precedent here. So, uh, so just saying, I'm helping you out. Six engagements and so love is in the air. So I've, I've been thinking about the dynamics of relationships and just what happens. You know, in dating relationships, it's, you, you're just like overwhelmed with insecurities, right? And you, you're constantly questioning, what is the other person thinking? And, and I want to do this for this person so that they like me a little more. And I just kind of trying to win over their approval, win over their acceptance, hoping that they'll like you a little bit more tomorrow. And there's all sorts of doubts and questions in your mind. But then the moment happens when you're at the altar and you make the covenant promise together, right? There's a promise that's been made at the altar before God, well before any government or doesn't matter what they, what they um, claim. Before God, you're making a covenant to each other. You are gonna be faithful to each other. Think of the change in dynamics in your relationship. I still pray over every marriage that there's a spark and a, and a fire to pursue each other, but there's this confidence that you don't have to win over their approval. You're committed to one another. And so beyond the emotions of butterflies in your stomach and, and the giddiness of flirting with one another. Now there's been this covenant commitment, steadfast relationship. And when you as a follower of Jesus can fully be uh, come into this revelation and understanding of the covenant promise that you enter into in faith, you can be released to this rest that you find in a covenant relationship of marriage. Not, not, um, I'm not talking about complacency and like laziness in marriage. I'm talking about this rest of confidence of trusting that this, this promise is true. It's trustworthy. So it is in Christ. And I pray that over every one of your lives, there's no insecurity 
in your relationship with Christ is you place your faith in Jesus as your Savior. There's this confidence that he is steadfast and true and faithful. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information about LifePoint Church, please visit www.livethemessage.org.